Hello and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our goal is to help people all around the world experience the love and power of Jesus and live passionately devoted to Him. We pray that the podcast is just that for you. Thank you for joining us on this journey and may burning witnesses arise for Him all around the world. And so it's a joy to be here. Um, If you would like to, you can open up your Bible. We're going to, let's just say we're going to start with Colossians chapter 3, with a verse that I am sure is going to be familiar. Um, As I was praying, I felt like the Lord gave me a particular phrase in the place of prayer, which we will use in order to frame in what is going to be our consideration uh, for this evening. Um, As I was praying and just really readying my heart to come and gather with all of you, Uh, I felt like the Lord uh, placed a burden of sorts or a desire in my heart. Um, And that is, the the Lord is looking for a people or a person um, that would be hospitable to him. A person of hospitality towards the Lord. Someone that would honor him and host him. In Colossians 3... Paul says in verse 16, 15 and 16, but, but it, he says, let the word of the Lord dwell richly among you or within you. He's writing to a people, so it's not necessarily just an individual devotional application. I mean, it's not necessarily wrong at times to do that. I I, I get it. We we like to, out of our um, intimate time with the Lord, our secret place, I get it, Matthew 6, we all have to have like an individual accountability. Uh, You can't delegate intimacy with God. Um, It's like sending someone to the gym for you and thinking you're going to reap the benefits. So, So you have to personally learn how to relate to God the way that he wants to be related to. Um, You have to answer the call, the beckoning of the Lord, as deep is calling out to or unto deep. And that tugging of the Spirit on each of our own individual lives is present and pressing. We have to answer, not answer to God in the form of judgment or criticism or evaluation. Uh, That's not necessarily what I mean, but we have to answer that call for ourselves, right? There's... There's at times this thing that happens in a corporate reality where we assume because we are the beneficiary of a corporate experience that it validates whatever my individual accountability or lack thereof might be in my life. Where we come to, uh, I live in Orlando, so I'm familiar with SeaWorld, right? There's parks there. Uh, And if you get up close, you can receive the splash, right? Like you can sit in the splash zone where you get wet, even though you might not be the one that's necessarily creating the splash, you can be a beneficiary of whoever it is that's creating the splash, right? And at times there's this deceptive notion in corporate experiences where we come and God shows up because he's gracious and he wants to be with his people. He longs to be in the midst of us when we're together. This is what the blood of Jesus paid for. This is what they give glory to the man or to the lamb on the throne in Revelation 5 is all about. You've actually done it. You've purchased a people for God. You did it with your own blood. They will be with you, which is what he prays for at the end of John 17 in verse 24. He says, this people that you've promised me, I have to have them 
because I want them to be with me where I am so that I can reveal my glory to them and they can behold my beauty in the age to come forever and ever and ever. So God longs to be in the midst of his people. Right? We have this as a reality, the tabernacling of God, where the Father descends in Revelation 21, where John hears the voice from the throne. And in the first four verses of Revelation 21, we have the descending of the Father in order to abide in the midst of a people that he has longed to be with since the days in the garden order back in Genesis. We have the ultimate fulfillment, if you would. We get the glimpse in the beginning. God's desire to abide in the midst of a people or to be present in a unique way. God longs to be present with his people in a unique way. And we long to have the Lord in the midst of us. We long to have the Lord uniquely present where there's a powerful and at times experiential, tangible, knowing or unveiling of God in an interactive way, where the fellowship of the Lord is real, where God is present. I'm not talking about, oh, well, you know, it was, a, it was the right set list, and oh, they sang my song, and like, oh, God was here. No, no, no. I'm talking about like where God is uniquely present, where God has chosen to create a habitation in a real tangible at times way where God possesses yes at times a place but a people I get it in the upper room in Acts 2 he filled the people but the wind blew and he filled the room so we want both and we get it God does both he fills places he fills people we just want God uniquely present whatever way he decides to do it we want the Lord and we want our hearts to be fine-tuned or sensitive in the place of God and the experiential fellowship that God offers of himself. One of the most absurd thoughts, one of the most provoking thoughts, confrontational thoughts that there is to me, I don't know about everybody else, but to me, is that God is available. He is as available as we are jealous to have him. He's available. One man of God in a book that I read one time, I remember the name of the book and I remember the name. Uh, it's not for, you know, uh, forgetting those things. It's just not necessarily ultimately important. Um, one man of God in reading a book one time, he said, God is willing to give of himself as much as you are willing to be satisfied with. And to the degree that we are living without reveals other spaces and places of our lives where appetites for other things have created satisfactions, where we have chosen to live in whatever measure it is of the Lord. And it can be deceiving at times gathering in a corporate way because we feel as if we're there and God is present, almost as if to assume that it would endorse whatever way of life now, granted, we're going to qualify this and create a context for this uh, because the last thing that I would want it to do or how I would want it to come across or to sound is some legislative or religious type thing. Everything changes when you take it out of the, the ritualistic have to do where you take it out of the systematic way of life, where we form a version of Christianity that we now fuel by our own strength or by our own power. 
right? Paul considers the end of the age. And as he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and then 4, he talks about some distinctions or some characteristics of the last days. And he says men will be lovers of themselves. And he goes through a list of things, and at the end of it, he says that they will create forms of religiosity. There'll be all of these externals, all of these images, all of these ideologies or systematic rituals of sorts, where they perfect a version of living for God, yet denying the power of God that is intended to be a transformative resource alive on the inside. And so we're not talking about something that's ritualistic or religious of sorts, religious in the context of the law or just forming my own standard that I can fuel by my own strength, denying the, the raw resource and the transforming power of God that is the Holy Spirit given as a down payment or an impartation to those that believe and are born again. So we're not talking about some religious conversation because everything changes when you put it in the context of relationship. Everything changes. Everything changes when you put it in the context of relationship and especially when you put it in the context of love. And in Colossians 3, Paul says, let the word of the Lord dwell richly among you. The language there that is being used is the idea of someone that longs to be hospitable to an honored guest. It's the intentionality to create a space where you long to give a certain type of attention to a guest. How many of you know there's a difference between hosting someone and there's a difference between just letting people come over? And you should do both, right? Like, it's not that one is necessarily right or wrong or better than, less than, but there's just a difference. That There's a difference between intentionality in hosting and creating an honored space where that space in the love and affection and attention in a more holistic way gets turned over with a, a certain type of jealousy where that space that gets created is only for the person that you are hosting. It's felt. It comes across. And then there's a difference in just kind of letting people come over, right? The, the preoccupations of life, certain interests, at times, there's a disconnect. It's like you're here, cool. Um, you know, I mean, not necessarily really in the place of attentiveness or what have you. Um, Jesus says of himself in Revelation 3.20, Yea, though I stand at the door and I knock, and I'm waiting for someone to come and to open the door and to let me in. Do you have a space in your life that you have intended to honor God with? And it's not a trick question, and it's not one of compartmentalization either. Because at times I think the compartmentalization game gets the best of us, where we long to honor the Lord, but there are spaces and conversations in our life where at times, although we wouldn't necessarily communicate it this way, the voice of God is off limits in those spaces and places. 
And there are particular areas of my life where, again, whether or not I would communicate it this way, I've graduated from the influence of God to be able to determine what my life looks like or where it goes in certain aspects or facets of my life. Where I'm no longer open to God's influence in particular areas of my life. Now again, I get it. That sounds really bad when you say it that way. It does. It doesn't sound as awesome as I would like it to sound. Uh, but nevertheless, the reality is at times, we live in such a way where there are areas of our life that we are open to God's influence and other areas where we have either graduated from that influence because we've obeyed in particular ways historically or previously where we feel like we've done our due diligence or duty in particular areas and now the conversation of the Lord is no longer able to influence me because my attention, the space that I create for God in order to host him, to honor him, in order to turn over my attention to him, to be hospitable to him is no longer necessarily sensitive or given over to that compartment or area of my life anymore. But in the midst of that, the Lord is looking for a people that would open up the door. And I would ask you, are there areas of your life that God can't talk to you the way that he wants to? Are there areas of your life where you've grown satisfied in the way that you're living and therefore have determined that the influence of God is no longer applicable or can no longer be appropriated to a particular facet or aspect of your life? I was 40 with a newborn child and thought to myself, Lord, this was not my plan. Now, I'm not saying that everybody that's in their 40s is supposed to have children. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we knew we were invited by the Lord in a particular way. And we knew that in journeying with God and recognizing his influence in our lives and being open to his voice and his leadership, his leading in our lives brought us to the place where it was undeniable that God was inviting us in order to obey him in a particular way. And Jesus would say it this way in John 14, 15. Those that love me, they obey me. And those that are unwilling to obey me, they actually don't love me. You could say that obedience is a barometer of love. Because obedience is not an activity issue. It's a love issue. Obedience is a love issue. Because obedience is different than adherence. You can get people to do what you want them to do, depending on how you incentivize them, either with things that motivate their appetites or with fearful type objectives. You can get people to align to whatever your decrees or your interests are by way of adherence. But obedience is a heart issue. Obedience is a matter of love. Obedience is a consequence of being conquered. And Jesus says, those that love me, they're the ones that obey me. That's John 14. In John 8, he would say it this way. I think it's 31, 32, where he begins this way. He says, I know those that are mine. He says, I'm not confused about it. He says, I know those that actually belong to me. He says, they're the ones that listen to me and they do what I say. 
And in listening to me and in doing what I say, it brings them to the knowledge of the truth. And in the knowledge of the truth, when they do what I say consistently, when they live the truth consistently, which is coming under my transforming love, coming under my transforming leadership, when they live under my love and leadership, they will consistently live the truth. And when they live the truth, it will bring them to the experience of freedom. And we know this verse because it tends to be more popular. And he who the Son sets free is free indeed. But the context for he who the Son sets free is free indeed is consistently experiencing freedom by consistently living the truth with this consistently obeying Jesus out of a loving devotion and a heart that wants to bend under the weight of his love and the desire to have the harness of his leadership on our lives. And in order for this to be something that is real, we have to encounter or taste something in God that unveils the beauty of God to us in such an extraordinary way that brings us into a deeper immersion in the knowledge of God in such a weighty and beautiful way. Right? The psalmist writes in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see. To those of us, because it's Paul writing in Colossians 3, to those of us that have tasted something in God, we've tasted something of his goodness. And the tasting of something in God, the unveiling of the beauty of God, the unveiling and the immersion into the knowledge of God in an experiential way, right? Because it has to be experiential and experiential in a variety of ways, right? In a variety of ways. And I say in a variety of ways because one of the things that it's important to take note of is that the presence is not just to be enjoyed. The presence is not just to be enjoyed. The presence is to be enjoyed, but it's intended to be surrendered to. It's intended to be surrendered to. The children of Israel journeyed through the wilderness, and they had experiences with God that probably eclipse most of the experiences that we know, as glorious as our history with God may be. And they were always experiencing God. Signs, wonders, miracles. The testimony of the Lord. The demonstration of his faithfulness, of his goodness, of his covenantal desires towards the people. There was the unveiling and the de demonstrating of God in the midst of a people in an incredibly unique way. But they were always experiencing, yet never surrendering. Always experiencing, yet never actually transforming. And when Paul writes, let the word of the Lord dwell richly among you, even as the psalmist writes in Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Paul was one that understood the tasting of the Lord in a transformative way. Consider Paul's conversion, if you want to call it that. His encounter with God 
in Acts chapter 9. He's running 100 miles an hour doing his own thing, living a religious life. He is, according to his own testifying, a murderer, a blasphemer, and a corrupt man. All the while, yet living with the title, with the influence, with all of the externals. Paul was one that realized, according to the law, I was found blameless. What he doesn't say is, according to the law, I was found sinless. He says, I was blameless. Uh, blameless is where you have evidence against me in order to say that you saw something come out of me that was wrong. It doesn't mean that you also understand that there's nothing wrong happening on the inside of you. It just means that no one has actually caught you living or expressing that wrong that you know that is alive on the inside of you. Paul said for a long time, all of what was the raging of the corruption that was still real and alive on the inside, I was masterful at putting the image on. I had grown proficient in the religious life and giving to everyone else what I knew it was that they wanted to see. And in Acts chapter 9, running 100 miles an hour, consider this, Paul is murdering believers. Right? Now, you may think that you've done some pretty serious stuff. And I'm not saying that you haven't, because I understand my resume also. But Paul has actual decrees, signed letters, legislation from government authorities to pursue believers, to persecute them, to, in, in very horrific ways, mock them in the streets, Execute them. Jail them. It's Paul standing over arrogantly the dying body of Stephen at the end of Acts chapter 7. And it's this Paul running 100 miles an hour in Acts chapter 9, actually headed to Damascus to find more believers. And running 100 miles an hour in all of what is the religious facades, he ends up running right into Jesus himself. And consider what Paul's response is to the Lord when Paul encounters Jesus in Acts chapter 9. Bright light, voice from heaven, falls off the horse. There are others that are there with him, but he's the one that is somehow enveloped in this moment, this experience, this encounter. Others are aware. They're just not necessarily in it the same way that Paul was. It, it, just consider what it is that Paul says after encountering the Lord the way that he does. He says, who are you? Who are you, Lord? To think that Paul lived potentially decades of his life in a religious way, and when he encountered the Lord and saw him in the way that Jesus chose to reveal of himself, his first reaction, his initial response was, I don't even know you. Who are you? But what Paul encountered in God was so real, was so rich, was so transformational, it actually set him free 
from the life journey and the trajectory that he was on in order to determine maturity and success in the ways that he had been up until that moment. It radically altered Paul's life in how he saw himself, meaning how he was defined and how he was directed. It radically altered the way that he interpreted himself. And from that moment forward, after experiencing something in God, Paul no longer identified the same way that he had been previously. He no longer identified before God or with people the same way that he had been up until that, that moment where the encounter or the experience was so real. Consider what he writes in Philippians 3, right? In Philippians 3, he begins in the chapter by considering his resume. He says, oh yeah, I used to resume build a particular way. He says, the way that I set my life up, everything that I was about, what I used to pursue, the way that I used to qualify maturity and success, and he reads off a resume of sorts. He says, I'm a Pharisee of a Pharisee. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a descendant of Abraham, on and on and on and on and on he goes. But in verse seven, he says, but now. Well, but now is in connection to experiencing something in God that set him free from a life journey of actually qualifying maturity and considering the success of his life in a way that was absent of the knowledge of God and hosting God the way that he desired for someone to be hospitable to him. And Paul says, but now, because of the way that God has revealed himself to me, I've lost everything for him. He says, I've lost everything for him. He says, all the titles, all the accolades, all the platforms, all the influence, all the notoriety, all of the way that my life was built, all of the appetites that I had for particular things, all of the ways that I would have defined success to you, all of that because of God's grace to me to reveal himself to me while I was running a hundred miles an hour in what was a wrong way of actually living and running and trying to honor God with the way that my life was set up. God's grace to me was to reveal himself to me and it absolutely rocked my whole world. He says, and now all of that, I consider it to be trash. All of that, I consider it to be garbage. One translation, he would say, I now consider it to be dung. You can have it. All of the things that used to qualify as important to me, all of the things in my life previously that would have been the ultimate considerations to me of what would make my life valuable are no longer even on my radar. I tasted something in God that conquered all of the appetites that used to drive me to define my life a certain way. I've tasted something that was so amazing in God that it actually conquered the way that I used to think my life was supposed to be lived. 
He says, and now all I want is to know him. He says, now I want to know him in the fellowship of his suffering and in the power of his resurrection. Being made conformed to his image and to his death. Paul said, there's one thing that's ultimate to me now, and it's knowing the Lord. There's one thing that matters most to me now. I want to know God in an experiential way. He says, I know all the religious stuff. I know all the rules, the regulations. I know all the externals. I know all what is the facade and the language and the influence based off of all of what is just the the smoke and mirrors game. He said, I've been there. I've done that. I've lived that way. He says, but now I've actually seen something, encountered something experienced something, tasted something in God that was so amazing that it radically redefined my whole life. In Philippians 4, he would say that that is where his idea of real freedom is found. Because as he continues in Philippians 4, we're familiar with, uh, and I get it, I mean, and it's amazing. Uh, I was going to say with what's become like refrigerator magnet Christianity, or bumper sticker Christianity, which is Philippians 4.13, for I can do all things because it's Christ who gives me strength. What is Paul actually saying? What Paul is saying is that Jesus has transformed my life in such a real and radical way that he set me free from all of what I used to think my life needed to be about, right? The Christian life is such an amazing experience. And I don't say that just to sound like some cheerleader or to make light of um, what is the born-again reality. But in the born-again life, in the Christian life, it's the only space or place in life where your identity is given to you. And it's not something that you actually worked for or made happen. In every other arena of life, consider the world system or the system of the age. The world system defines you by what you do and what you have. It qualifies your value or your importance based off of what you've been able to accomplish over the course or the journey of life. It wants to know what do you do. It wants to know who do you know, who are you connected to. It wants to know what do you have. And then it creates compartments and conversations in order to define us and to divide us. It's why we have different classes, because we assume that inherently a person's value is tied to what the world qualifies them with. And so we want to know. What side of town did you grow up on? What kind of money do you have? What do you do for a living? What type of accomplishments have you had over the course of your life? Who, are, who is it that you're connected to? What type of responsibilities How are you right now overseeing or do you feel responsible for? But the Christian experience, the born-again reality, those who come to God get radically redefined. They get radically redefined. This is ground zero. 
It's the introduction to the Christian life is a radical redefining of sorts. It's where we are given a new identity and it has nothing to do with what we've done. It has nothing to do with our individual or unique assignments, responsibilities, objectives. The new identity as a born-again reality doesn't consider where you work, how much money you have, who you're married to, where you were raised, how much influence your parents have, what color your skin is, what continent you're from, what language you speak. It doesn't necessarily primarily have an interest in those things. Peter in 1 Peter 2, writes as a distinction when he opens his letter saying that he's talking to exiles and misfits, these born-again new creatures that are roaming the earth, longing to live a life that is hospitable to God. This great um, Hebrews 11 company Right, that have tasted something in God so rich and so great that they have forsaken all of the things of this life. They have turned away from all of what is the lower level attractions, the lesser lovers and what the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life are trying to drive people to. They've turned away from these things because they've experienced something in God where they've now set their whole life up in God in order to leverage their attention, their affection, and their appetites towards being hospitable to the Lord in such an incredible way where they are now journeying through this life, understanding themselves as exiles. One translation says aliens. Another translation would say misfits where we understand that we no longer find our belonging or our bearings in the world system, in the sway of the world, in the pattern of this age. As 1 John 5, 19 would tell us, he says, Beloved, we know that we belong to God, but the rest of the world has been immersed or has been baptized into the sway of the wicked one. There's a pattern to this age, there is a discipleship influence and agenda that is being uh, overseen or influenced by rulers and powers. There's a direction that the rest of the world is headed, and the enemy wants to pull as many people into that direction and that ongoing experience as he can. And in Hebrews 11, it says that there's a company of folks who realize that they don't fit there anymore. They've tasted something in God. And this is the born again experience and reality where we come to God and he unveils the beauty of his son in our hearts in such an extraordinary way where we become joyfully conquered and we get radically redefined. And we now live as these 2 Corinthians 5, uh, according to Paul, ambassadors and representatives where our life is no longer our own. And it's cool to sing songs about giving your life away. It's cool to sing songs. Oh, Lord, man, I get so emotionally charged in a worship moment or at an altar experience. Or man, like God moves on me in such a wild way. And there's just an energy of sorts that accompanies that. 
and I say things in a moment uh, without the consideration of what the implications of that would be in an ongoing way, right? Like it's, it's somewhat, uh, I, I chuckled a little bit during worship, right? Now I love this song. <laughs> break the seal, right? Open the scroll, break the seal, worthy one. Do we realize like what we're singing and, and interceding for? You know what I'm saying? Like seriously, like, like do you ever stop for a moment and think to yourself like, like what am I actually singing? I want to be tried by fire, purified, you take whatever you desire. Lord, here's my life. Right? I give myself away. My life is not my own. To you, oh Lord, I belong. Do you actually mean that? Because I'll tell you where it's tested. It's tested in the invitations that God gives in order to honor him in a particular way and in different spaces and places of your life where God is looking for hospitality. You find out real quick how many areas of your life may be off limits to God when he longs for hospitality in certain places or spaces of our lives. Where God says, I want you to honor me in this conversation of your life. I want to actually come and occupy this space. And I want you to create a space where you're going to love me and honor me and be attentive to me and obey me in this space of your life. Yeah, 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 I get it. Your whole life belongs to me, but I want this space. I get it. You're mine and I'm yours and it's amazing. And we have this interactive thing going on and praise God. But I want this conversation of your life in this unique way. Will you give it to me? Will you give it to me? Well, unless we've actually been freed in God, there will be immediate resistance in our hearts at times to the invitation to bear up under the weight and the beauty of the word of the Lord in particular ways. If I haven't actually yet been freed in God in certain conversations or aspects of my appetites and in my life, then when the Lord is looking for hospitality in certain spaces of my life, the resistance that will begin to rise is my supposed understanding of who I want to be in relationship to that space or to that place. Which is why Paul resume reads, he says, this is who I used to be. These are the things that used to matter to me. This is how I used to qualify success and define certain things in my life. But God revealed himself to me, and it was so extraordinary, it set me free in every possible way. And that's where he says in Philippians 4, I can do all things. In the previous verses, he says, it no longer matters to me. Whether I have absolutely nothing and I'm living in a way where I'm being stretched, where I'm being pressed, where I'm surviving, where I'm living in supposed lack, where there's all types of unique pressures and all types of seeming tragedies that I'm having to undergo and to bear up under in an ongoing way. He says whether it's that type of context or whether it's the dynamically opposite side where I'm thriving, where there's mountaintop breakthrough, abundance, all types of these experiences. He says it no longer actually matters to me. 
He says, my devotion doesn't demand a context. I can honor God in any space and in any place because I'm actually free. And I don't have to define my life or the value of my life according to the world standards. Because the person that is able to honor God in any space or place is the person that is actually free. The person that is able to honor the word of the Lord and to be hospitable to God, regardless of the invitation, is the one that is actually free. The one that's not uniquely confronting resistance based off of identity issues or value orientations. Meaning again, when you come to God in the born again experience, he starts with a brand new identity. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, remember who you used to be. At one time, you were not a people. You were just like everybody else in the world. You were living under the influence of the world system, rulers and powers. You were chasing the things they were chasing. You had the appetites for what they had. You dreamed the same dreams. You were living in the same sway of sorts. He says, but now, by God's mercy and through the redemption that we have in the blood of Jesus, he says he's actually set you free and he's made you to be a people, but not just any people, not just any type of people or person that you want to be because the distinction starts with God's desires and God longs to have a peculiar people or a holy possession. And Peter says, remember, beloved, that you don't belong to yourself, but that now you're not just any people. Now you're the people of God. And now you're a people that God has redeemed and that he's planting throughout the nations of the world, every city, every region, every nation across the world system in order to showcase or to show forth the glorious riches of his kindness and the power that is at work in those that are actually born again that belong to God. And part of the beauty of our born-again experience is that we receive a new identity. We receive a new identity. And an identity as sons and daughters is not first qualified by where you work, who you know, how much you have, how much you don't have. As a matter of fact, when, when you come to what is the Exodus 19 encounter, where God is present upon the top of the mount, in an epic way with all types of glory accompanying him. Exodus 19, he tells them, I long to have a people that would be all mine. He says, this is why I set you free. This is why I pursued you while you were in Egypt, while you were living an adulterous life. And I say that because it's not some charity case. When you look throughout Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they both prophesy that the days in the Egyptian captivity, that they became prostituted in certain ways, that their hearts grew in affection for the idols of Egypt and that they bowed low to their gods. And God says, I pursued you while you were prostituting yourself. I pursued you because I desired to be good to you. I longed to reveal my affection to you. And so I pursued you 
and I conquered all of your enemies, and I exalted myself above all of what was the adversaries and those that were longing to see you in captivity and bondage for the rest of your life experience. He says, and I set you free, and with outstretched arm, signs, wonders, glory, and miracles, I delivered you. I did what thought couldn't be done. And he brought them out to the mount. And it says, after two months, he tells Moses, bring them to me, because I want to reveal to them what all of this is about. And he says to them, I long to have a people that will be a holy possession. I want a people that will be mine. I want a people that will be different from every other people group that's on the face of the earth. A people that will be radically redefined by a God that is alive and abides in the midst of them. By a God that is uniquely present among them and transforming them in an ongoing way by his love and leadership. He says, I long to have a people that I can possess. And he says, if you will listen to my voice and obey my commands. That's the proposal. There's a contingency plan in the Exodus 19 Sinai account. If you will listen to my voice and obey my commands, then you will be a holy priesthood to me. You will be a holy possession. You will be priests. You will be peculiar. Well, interestingly enough, God also reveals what is the desires of a subjection of sorts. Because at times we think enjoyment without subjection. Again, the presence isn't just to be enjoyed, it's to be surrendered to. Because every revelation should produce a greater subjection. Meaning every experience in God Every unveiling or immersion in the knowledge of God, every O oh, taste and see of the goodness of God should produce a deeper level of surrender in our lives where we don't just want to enjoy him, but we want to become subject to him. And growing in the knowledge of God in our lives produces a greater, a greater freedom in the knowledge of ourselves. Every greater experience in God that unveils a greater aspect of the knowledge of God should in turn produce a greater experience of the understanding or a revelation of who we are in God. In Matthew 16, Peter says, for thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, right? Jesus applauds that. He says, you're not just parroting what other people are saying, right? You're not just seeming to echo what other voices are saying. He said, my father has actually revealed something to you or disclosed something to you by the spirit, right? And he applauds it. He says, flesh and blood could not have given you the insight or the revelation that you have, right? So not flesh and blood, not an echo, not just parroting. He says, but by the spirit, You've actually seen something that my father has chosen to reveal to you of who it is that I am. And he says, from this point on, you shall no longer be Simon Barjona, but you shall become Peter or you shall be Peter. In the knowledge of God, there should also be an ever increasing understanding of the knowledge of ourselves. And what I mean by that is the only true way 
to know yourself is to immerse yourself into the person of God. Because until that time, we are still defining ourselves by particular aspects of our life experience that should have been conquered and requalified in the born again experience. Meaning, when I come to God and I get born again, he destroys or should. The power of God at work in my heart should bring me to the place where I destroy all of what was the previous systematic way and the agendas of how I determined value or success in my life. Previously, when it was built off of all of the appreciations of the world system, when it was built off of who you know, what you have, yada, 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 the materialistic endeavors, the financial accomplishments, the, the corporate ambitions, uh, the, the, the social interactions and, and all of these things, uh, all of the unique compartments where, where I'm becoming subject to conversations that belong to the world, but because my interests in my value are still tied to these things, I uniquely am still uh, using these things to align uh, in particular particular conversations because of the life or the, the definition that I receive from them. When I come to the Lord, the Lord radically defines us. You're now a son. You're now a daughter. And it has absolutely nothing to do, which is why it's important that we get radically redefined and that the work of God gets accomplished in the heart of a person that is coming to him because we quickly rise from an experience with God and then run into the world system and want to qualify and define and find value in ways that if we're not careful, when God comes back around, longing for hospitality in certain ways, we will have resistance in our hearts to love him the way that he's asking to be loved because of the way that we define our life, the value that we receive from certain conversations. But that's where Paul says, I can go anywhere, do anything. God has absolutely changed me. I am a transformed person. I am now what I am and what I am. I am by the grace of God. I'm no longer resume building. I'm not jockeying with all of my contemporaries trying to get position and power and influence. All of those things and the games I used to play, they're now all garbage. They're now all dung. Now all I care about, my supreme interest, what has now become my obsession, what is my greatest captivation and fascination is to know God as he is in an experiential way as a real person. Hospitality matters to Jesus. All of this side of history is going to end with hospitality. Matthew 23, at the end of that chapter in verse 39, Jesus looks at, at that time, what is the leaders of Jerusalem, right? He's lamenting, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets and those who 
I've sent to you how I long to gather you like a hen gathers chicks, but you've missed your day of visitation. But he says in verse 39, he says, I will not return to you or I will not come again until you say to me, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's looking at a particular people in a certain city. Yes, I get that contextually and saying to them, I will not return to you until you host me the way that I long to be hosted. I will not return to you until you are hospitable to me. Now we get it. Uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is Psalm 118. So he's saying, I'm not coming again until you in this city sing Psalm 118 to me. But it's because hospitality actually matters to the Lord. He wants to be related to in a particular way. Right? That's the idea of the Exodus 19 unveiling of God. The rest of the chapter is the prioritization of presence. The rest of the book of Exodus is the prioritization of the presence where he says, I long to have a holy possession, a people that will be all mine, a people that will be radically redefined and they will be peculiar and a provocation of sorts considered the rest of the people in the world. But I want them to be mine. And the remainder of Exodus is let's learn how to prioritize presence. That's the remainder of Exodus. Well, Leviticus and Numbers is let's get into the nitty gritty details of how your life is actually lived, right? Leviticus and Numbers, if you take it according to Jewish customs of what is the process of a Jewish marriage, it's the legal marriage aspect or it's the phase of legal marriage. It's not like um, what would be the uh, synonymous thing for us would be an engagement, right? Where you get engaged and you're intended to be married. Well, a betrothal is a little different, right? God betrothed himself to a people at Sinai. A betrothal would be a little different. A betrothal is legal marriage, even though you're still living in separate situations. But the process of the betrothal considered to be legal marriage is you are actually legally married. And you are just going through what is the details of how you're coming to the point where you're going to merge property and possessions. Consider when... Mary was betrothed to Joseph and he found out that she was pregnant in Matthew 1. And it says that he was going to abandon her in the middle of the night so that according to what was Levitical law, she wouldn't be stoned out in the middle of the streets for being unfaithful during the period of the betrothal, which is actually legal marriage. And so when you see Exodus and the remainder of Exodus as God's desire to have a people, The prioritization of presence. You have to learn to live to prioritize the presence. Right? That's the remainder of Exodus. It's the tabernacle. It's all of the instructions of how they're going to construct the tent of meeting or the tabernacle of sorts. The place where God is going to abide. He's going to be uniquely present. He's going to dwell among them. The remainder of the book of Exodus is let's learn how to build your life around God being uniquely present. And then Leviticus and Numbers is all the nitty-gritty details. It's religious and sacrificial. It's every civil and moral issue that life presents to us with the variety of interactions with people and circumstances. Because God longs to have people that will honor him in a particular way. 
He longs to have people that will be hospitable to him. I'm not coming again until you host me the way that I long to be hosted. He tested them in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. It says that he acted as if he were going to continue on, testing their hearts to see what they would do if he just kept moving. And it says they urged him, come home with us. They tugged at him and they said, we want to host you. Come home with us. We want to be hospitable to you. God is looking for a people that would be hospitable to him. A people that would host him in the way that he desires to be hosted. And I'm telling you, uh, unless we've tasted something in God that has set our heart free, along the way, God is going to ask you to love him in particular ways where the resistance will rise in your heart to not want to give to him the space or the place or the conversation of your life that he is longing for you to be hospitable to him in. It may be a financial conversation. It may be a way of life conversation. It may be a missional conversation, right? You see yourself a certain way based off of a particular responsibility or activity. It may be a certain group of people. It may be where you live. I'm just telling you, man, like when you walk with the Lord long enough, you realize he feels loved by us in certain ways. And what he's asking for is because he's looking for obedience and hospitality in certain areas. It's because he feels loved by you in ways and at times that he doesn't feel loved by anyone else. You actually have the ability to move him and love him in unique ways when you respond to him based off of what it is that he may be asking of you or inviting you or looking for a particular conversation in your heart or in your life for you to host him in the way that he's looking for. Jesus says of John the Baptist in Matthew 11, John was great. In fact, he says there was no one greater than John. Um, for me, if Jesus thinks that someone lived a life that was great, I would want to evaluate the things about this person's life that brought Jesus to the place where his evaluation of them said there's been no one like them. John is the greatest born of women. Matthew eleven eleven. Right? Well, we know that John seemed to live a pretty lackluster or not extraordinary life up until what is the final six to 18 months. Six to 18 months of public ministry. Six to 18 months of visibility, six to 18 months of being on what is some sort of platform, some sort of notoriety, some sort of visibility before the region that God did in his life. And we consider John's life more in the context of that six to 18 months than we do the 30 years that actually prepared him for it. And it's because there's just something about us 
that wants to or longs to be defined or feel valued based off of what we can showcase before other people, based off of a particular activity or responsibility, based off of the applause or the accolades or the influence or the interest in you know, certain categories or conversations. John spent 30 years, we get it, he's the cousin of Jesus, born around the same time, six months older than Jesus. John spent 30 years in obscurity, hiddenness. He spent 30 years in what we would consider to be a pretty boring and normal space in life. We know that John gave himself to a small group of people, Luke 11. The disciples of John came to Jesus and they said, just like John taught his disciples to pray, teach us to pray. So we know that John gave himself to a small group of people in a consistent way. He was faithfully anchored, almost in a covenantal way with a small group of disciples. He lived his life in community. We know that John was a man of fasting. Matthew eleven eighteen. Jesus said, John came neither eating nor drinking, and you said that he had a demon. <laughs> So we know that John lived in community. He had a group of disciples. We know that he was a man of fasting and prayer. We know that he was immersed in the word. For when they asked him in John 3, where did you come from? What are you about? Who are you? Are you the Christ? He said, no. He said, I am the voice crying out in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. So we know that his life was immersed in the word. Because he saw his life in the context of the scriptures, that being Isaiah 40. So John was a man of the word, deep in the scriptures, a life deep in the scriptures. He was a man of fasting and prayer. He was a man of community and discipleship, being discipled by God and actually influencing and raising up others in the ongoing journey and life experience of discipleship. And Jesus said that his life was great. Not because of the 6 to 18 months of visibility, but because of the 30 years in an obscure place where he chose to host God in a particular and faithful way. 30 years of hiddenness, honoring God and being hospitable to him. 30 years of giving God whatever space or place or conversation of his life God was asking him for. Man, are you really willing to turn over every space, place, and conversation of your life to the Lord if he asks you to host him or to love him in a certain way? I get it, man, at the altar, like, man, God is great. Like, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything. But you got to leave and get in that car. Like, you have to do life with God. Like you have to learn how to set your life up on the presence and to honor God and to host him and to be hospitable to him. And that means that Jesus is uniquely going to ask for you to open the door into spaces or places of your life journey and the conversations of who you are. Will you love me? Not just in a generic way, not just in some abstract way, not just through the adoption of some language where you're like, man, God is great. My life is his. It's amazing to be born again. I'll go anywhere, do anything. Okay, great. Since that's what you say and pray and sing, I'm asking for this space. Will you honor me here? Will you turn this space of your life over to me? Will you be hospitable to me? And I'm telling you, everything changed for me 
when the Holy Spirit said to me, he's asking you to love him this way. He feels loved by you when you host him, when you're hospitable to him, when you turn over those spaces and places of your life that he's asking for that you previously used to hold so tight. But it's because you understood yourself in a different way. It's because you defined yourself in a different way. But now this wild transformation and radical redefinition that happens when we taste something in God and when we get immersed into the knowledge of God, not just in enjoyment, but in subjection, where we say, Lord, my life really is yours. And there's nothing about me that I hold too tightly that if you asked me to host you or to love you in this space of my life, I wouldn't want to miss the chance to love you the way that you're asking to be loved because of an appetite for things that are associated with what the world applauds and values. Right? I don't watch particular things because the Lord has told me he feels loved when I turn my attention over to him that way. I don't listen to certain things, not because of some religious to-do list or some sort of cold, sterile, right? Like rules and regulations. Oh, no, 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 no. No, we've graduated beyond what is just the elementary, is this right or wrong, right? Luke 10, Jesus says, Mary, Mary has chosen the better. It's what's better. Martha, you're worried about things that in an ultimate sense just don't matter the way you think they do. Mary has chose the better. She's chosen to host me a certain way. And as I started, man, I really just sensed in my heart tonight as I was, as I was praying that the Lord is longing for hospitality. That he's looking for a people, and yes, a person, but Jesus saves people to make them a part of a people. He's looking for a people that will host him the way that he desires to be hosted. That will be hospitable to him. Yea, though I stand at the door and I knock. But who's actually going to come and open up the door and let me in? Who's going to host me the way that I want to be hosted? Who's going to be attentive to me and hospitable to me? Who's going to create that space for the honored guest? Lord, tonight I want to make room in the ways that you're asking me to make room. Man, I hear you knocking on the door. And it is my desire beyond just a conversation. Acknowledging God in a conversation is not the same thing as the practical obedience, the demonstration of love by way of devotion that says to the Lord, I'm not just acknowledging the conversation, but I'm actually going to open up my life and turn over my heart. Lord, I am yours, but what's more amazing than that is that you are mine, and because you are mine, that's the only way that I can actually be yours the way that 
you are inviting me to because I can only love him because he has first loved me. And so I'm not trying to just muster up some kind of fleshly might or some sort of pressure or strength or some sort of religious thing where I'm just going to strive harder to try to love God and do what he's asking me to do. No, 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 no. God is going to give grace to those whose hearts burn to actually love him and host him the way that he is looking for a person or a people to be hospitable to him. And this is where we put the anchor of our rest and our joy is that it is God's desire more than it is mine. And that I actually can't even desire these things the way that he wants me to unless he first births the desire on the inside of me that I become attentive or responsive to and then partner with grace to give him the thing that he has so graciously empowered me to be able to give him. And the Lord is looking for hospitality tonight. He's looking for someone to open the door and to be willing if it calls for that. I'm not saying that in every, in every way it's going to call for that. But if it does, man, may the Lord give grace in order for us to respond to him the way that he's inviting us to. If it calls for a radical redefinition of sorts, where, man, the evaluation of my own heart and agenda and motives is to be qualified according to the standards or the values of the world, where I'm not actually free enough because of what I've tasted in God in order to yield to him in particular ways when he speaks to me, invites me, longs for hospitality in particular areas or conversations of my life. But I long for that. Man, I want the Lord to touch me in such a real way where the things that used to matter to me, they just don't matter the way they used to. Where all of the fighting for self-preservation and to identify with the world around me in a particular way and to know my own value in a particular way where God destroys what was the motivation for that system and way of life. But the Lord has to do it. Man, and I just sense him knocking on the door tonight. I just sense him knocking on the door tonight, looking for this type of hospitality. Who's going to open up to me and let me in? Who's going to prioritize my desires to be uniquely present? Well, how? Lord, speak to us tonight. My desires to abide, not just in a generic way, but in a prescriptive way through a people that will love me, honor me, obey me. Lord, give grace for that tonight. Give grace for that tonight. Lord, we want to be like John, who even in the hiddenness and brokenness and obscurity of our lives, we've opened the door to know you and to host you. And you have radically baptized us in a life of value, in a life of enjoyment, in a life of subjection, where we know that you see us, where we know that you see us, Lord. And this is where we find our rest and our joy. We are seen by God.
And whatever it is that you want, Lord, give us grace to want it too. Whatever it is that you're desiring or saying tonight, Lord, give us grace to where we can come up under the word of the Lord. To where we can come up under the word of the Lord. Lord, what are you saying to me tonight? In what way are you looking for love from me? He feels loved by you. You move him in the place of your love and with your obedience. Those that love me, they will obey me. And to know that you can move him and that in practical ways, through hosting him and being hospitable to him, he can feel loved by you. This absolutely revolutionized my life. <laughs> it absolutely revolutionized my life. Let's do this for just a moment. Let's, let's stand together. I'm just going to take a moment and pray. Uh, Lord, tonight we sense you near. We sense you near. Thank you, Lord, for your work in each one of our hearts. For the journey of faith. And each of our individual stories. Thank you, Lord, for the price that has been paid over time. To know you. Lord, I'm believing that even as we've gathered here and that as we've been present together over the evening, um, Holy Spirit, that you've been moving and working, nudging our hearts in particular ways, revealing to us the desires of the Father. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you tonight to move upon your people with an empowerment of grace to love Jesus, to love him well, to love him in the ways that he desires and that he deserves. Would you do something in each one of our hearts tonight to where the spaces and places of who we are and the way that we live our life, we don't want to be outside of the influence of the voice of God. 
So we say, Lord, have your way. As dangerous of a heart cry as that may be. Not dangerous to us physically, meaning some sort of penalty, but dangerous at times to the idea of who we want to be that we've been trying to preserve or fuel or maintain. Lord, have your way. Lord, have your way. When resistance rises in my heart, um, Lord, have your way. When objections and all sorts of conversations that, that want to bring me to the place where I'm exempt from the influence of the voice of God seem to abound and to be multiplied on the inside, Lord, have your way. I want to be yours. And I want to love you the way that you long to be loved. And Lord, I want to open the door and host you in any way that you're longing to be hosted. Lord, have your way. I want to host you. I want to make room for you. I want to create honored space for you. I don't just want to enjoy your presence and then seek to rule over my own life. Lord, give me grace to be hospitable to you. Thank you again for listening today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website at www.burningones.org or download our app.